Hey there. This episode of Raoul's Adventures in Crypto is sponsored by the Token 2049 Blockchain Conference. Join over 10,000 attendees for this year's biggest crypto event at Token 2049 Singapore on the 13th and 14th of September. Balaji Srinivasan, Mike Novogratz, Arthur Hayes and over 200 others will hit the stage joining the industry's most influential names for an unforgettable experience ahead of the iconic Formula One Grand Prix race weekend. Singapore will transform into a crypto hub for a week from the 11th to the 17th of September with over 300 side events that make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Builders and investors at the bleeding edge of innovation will drive an agenda that covers ever-evolving topics ranging from the regulatory landscape to the convergence of crypto and AI, Web3 Gaming, NFTs in the Metaverse, DeFi, Scalability, Interoperability, and much, much more. Visit t2049.co slash realvision, that's t2049.co slash realvision, for 65% off regular ticket prices with the code realvision, or click on the link below in the description. So, I'm really looking forward to the next conversation. And this is starting to bring together a lot of what we're seeing. And I'm bringing together my really good friend, Keith Grossman, I've not spoken to in a while. So this is our authentic catch up and it's always going to be fun. And I want to ask Keith, is it game on? And let's see what he has to see, because he has a very broad perspective at, at MoonPay, because they're doing some really unique things. The world of crypto is an incredibly exciting journey that we're all going on together. We don't know where it's leading to, but we know it's going to be absolutely massive. Join me, Raoul Powell, as I guide you on our adventure to discover just what this new world will look like. Keith, how the devil are you? I'm good. How are you, my friend? It's fantastic because we haven't caught up. So this is actually just an official catch up of you and I, because you've been up to us so much stuff and I... I just want to hear all about it. What the hell have you been up to? Because last time you were in time, you know, I've got my, uh, come up later, my time NFT with Aku. You pioneered that whole thing. Then you moved to MoonPay. Tell us all. Has it been that long since we've caught up? Yeah. It, it, well, you and I have caught up, but. Oh, like, the views have of, like everyone on the news front, it's been this long. Like, wow. Okay. I don't even know where to start. Here's a funny way of thinking about it is July 2nd was my six month anniversary at Moonpeg, right? So um, it was very easy for me to frame that I've now been there officially six months. And, you know, it, it's, been, it's been a lot of fun, right? Like on every level. But what I realized through this is a lot of the people in the Web3 space had not known me in what I would call the like build phase of me. Right. Like, like a lot of people were introduced to me after time pieces came out. Right. Like, um, so they didn't see sort of all the work that goes in before that. Um, they never knew me when I was at Bloomberg. They never knew me when I was, you know, at Wired or ours. Um, and so like I go into what I would say is, is tunnel vision. Right. And it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing and awful depending on what side of the tunnel you're on and then what your perspective of that is. <laughs> Um, but you know, like here's a company that grew very fast, right. Uh, and had, you know, uh, um, incredible sort of momentum and, you know, I come in, Asif Herji comes in as, as the president, uh, from Coinbase, um, Lindsay Haswell comes in from, um, uh, blockchain.com and previously Uber as the chief legal officer. 
Um, and I even had done like a really great job of just like making sure that he, I would say, rounded out the executive team, which also included him and Max and uh, Z Feroz, who, you know, was the chief strategy officer and, and also was the head of Coinbase International, the CEO of Coinbase International at one point. And, um, and we've just been sort of building, building towards what I would say is, you know, the mass adoption of these technologies. So we had Ivan on a while ago as well, but give us what, for people who aren't familiar with MoonPay, because it's not as consumer facing generally, but you do a huge amount of stuff. So let people know what MoonPay is up to and then what you're doing there as well. Sure. And so where you're going. You know, MoonPay was originated as a payments widget, right? Like it should be very easy to be able to buy crypto, use your credit card and enter into the ecosystem, right? It solved a lot of the problems that like the complexities that were up in the front. Um, over the course of four years, as it evolved, it really started to focus in on um, how can it be a payments sort of rail, but then also how can it be an infrastructure company, right? And how can we do everything for people um, from, you know, the... A payment solution to the minting and the on-ramping to the, you know, off-ramping to, you know, treasury management to, um, uh, you know, the likes. And so um, as we started to think about the infrastructure play, um, what was really important was MoonPay had solved sort of the, I would say, horizontal convenience of entering into the ecosystem um, with the exception of a few things. Um, you had to assume that the company or brand wanted to enter into Web3. And then second, you know, that they knew what they wanted to do in Web3. And so in January, when MoonPay acquired uh, Nightshift, the agency out of Toronto, which we renamed to Other Life with them, um, that solved that part of the question, which was like, if you don't even understand how to enter into the space, but you know that there's something there, that there's something really interesting there. Um, we can help you from end to end, from ideation strategy and front end dev to all of the tech integration to enter into, um, you know, these types of solutions. And so what's what's your role there? And why have you been on planes all the time? I never get hold of you because I get WhatsApps. Just, I'm in Dubai. I'm in Tokyo. I'm... You know, like my, my role is, is to really focus on the business of MoonPay, right? And, you know, there's different areas of the business of MoonPay that roll up into me. On one end, you know, all of the on-ramp business, you know, and the monetization there. Um, on the other end, it's the infrastructure, right? Like how do we monetize and bring brands into Web3? Um, uh, on another level, it's concierge, right? So like, how can we make sure that, you know, anytime that we can really think about strategically, you know, servicing our customers, like, I, I think that's where I come into play. So where... When you're talking to people now, what's the state of Web3? Where, where are you seeing? Because I'm seeing a lot of brands are really interested. You know, you know the guys at Science Magic Studios as well. Yeah. People are interested, but most people aren't yet ready to pull the trigger, but they're definitely watching. How are you seeing the landscape right now? Sure. So, like, first, I love the guys over at Science Magic Studios. Like, and you know that. Like, I'm just a gigantic fan of Tariq. Like, I think he is... a a tremendous leader over there. Um, you know, I, I would say my definition of Web3 is matured. Um, when I first started thinking about Web3, my definition was um, crypto, blockchain technologies, you know, NFTs, like all of that stuff is one. Um, as I think about Web3 today, 
I actually, I had to actually change my mental model of it when um, it was brought to my attention, right? Like what we're really seeing is the complete reinvention of the internet in front of us, right? And if you think about Web3 as really three things um, that are leading to that reinvention, I would say it's blockchain technology as the base layer, right? And like the rise of Web3 came with the blockchain technology being the sort of leading story. And I would actually posit that blockchain technology is the background, right? It's the invisible ba base layer. And I'll tell you what also changed my mind on this. Um, in the middle, like uh, if you were to think about it as like the hamburger meat, um, I would say is GPT and AI technology, right? In some instances, AI and GPT technology can exist invisibly behind the scenes. In some instances, it's very visible and consumer facing. And then 100% within the sort of visible layer at the top end, the top part of the hamburger bun, I would say is um, immersive experiences, right? So that is AR, VR, and metaverses, right? And I think that if you think about Web3 as those three things in combination contributing to the holistic evolution of the internet, then I think that all of a sudden you start to realize like, wow, we're seeing something really big, right? And what sparked my thought on that was um, the New York Times published this article and they had this picture and it was from Mid Journey and it was these four kids, I think, you know, on it. And it said, can you, is this picture real? Was something like the headline. And I tweeted and I said, um, or they said, how, how would you know if this picture was real? And in my mind, I said, well, you know, if you had an immutable source of truth, right, that you could literally show the authenticity of the picture, um, then all of a sudden AI and blockchain technology have like a very complementary relationship to each other. And um, that, that started to really change my entire perspective of like how I was even thinking about sort of this evolution. And I think it has changed my perspective of how I've been engaging with clients and talking with clients, right? Um, it's not a lot about what's the marketing play as much as what's the infrastructural play. And I think that if MoonPay is successful over the coming years, a few things happen. One is nobody says the term Web3 anymore, right? It just goes away like the same way- It just becomes the internet. Totally. It's safe. Nobody calls it Amazon.com anymore or Salesforce.com. It's just Salesforce. It's Amazon. They're not .com companies. They're just companies. Um, and then number two is, is MoonPay is an invisible layer, right? It's an invisible infrastructure layer. And if you know, you know. Right. And that's that's really important to me. Yeah. It makes total sense. I've always thought somewhere similar, but you you were very eloquent how you put it together is is blockchain being the the kind of infrastructure layer, AI is kind of the knowledge layer or or what moves everything along. And then on top um are the is the experience layer. I think I've been talking about this a lot. This identity layer I know. which is both human identification and content authentication is like the most important single part of the infrastructure now we've got ai i mean you and i are watching every day on twitter these mid-journey models get better and better and better and you're like oh my god well i'll give you one Earl. how about this a very 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 dear friend of mine today sent me and and, and he's ceo of another company so like we're talking very senior in his role, sent me a clip 
of a kid hitting a golf ball into a lightning storm and the golf ball is struck by lightning. Wait, mid-air, okay? And they captures. And my first reaction to it was, how do you know it's real? Right? Think about how messed up of a world we're in. That's my first reaction. How do you know if it's real? And his response was, it was published in USA Today. Okay, if you Google, you know, golf ball struck by lightning, USA Today, you'll see the article, you'll see the video, okay? And what I would argue is that if you think about the world that I came from, which was media, right? The value of brands, especially a brand like Time, historically, was the red border, right? Acting as a trusted filter. The value of USA Today, trusted filter. Value of New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, any of these brands, trusted filter, right? The onus on these brands will be, how do you take that trusted filter and add a truth layer in, right? And that truth layer is going to be whatever you can validate on a blockchain to show authenticity that you as that brand have done the onus of proving that this is real, right? And I think that that's where publishing goes. And I actually think in the weirdest, most positive spin of it, that is going to be the undoing of fake news because like there will probably be a check mark or something that consumers will not care about going down and looking at the authenticity just the same way that nobody clicks on somebody's you know, blue check mark in Instagram to see did they buy it or did they earn it? But the check mark does mean that it was validated somehow, right? And I think that that trust and that truth factor is going to be really important over the coming years. So, how do you provide a solution for that? Because a lot of it is quite difficult. It's it's okay with obviously photographs and stuff like that. Probably with copy because it's it's relatively straightforward. So, somebody can't fake up the New York Times because you can do that. The big problem is video. Yeah. We haven't really solved that yet. No, I mean, look, like these are these are all the challenges that we're going to find ourselves in over the coming years, right? Like, and you either have to look at it and say it's- Well, the coming election is what I'm worried about. Oh, I, I, yeah. I mean, you saw the other day, there was that uh, girl that was fully made up on Twitter, right? That made the comments about the affirmative action ruling and it turned out and it sparked outrage and it turned out that it was total social manipulation on Twitter, right? She doesn't even exist as a human being, right? And so, like, this is a crazy world that we're going to enter into. The one thing I would say about it is this. It feels like we're entering into this moment of time where, like, like things are coming out of our control and the world's being reinvented, right? Um, I just, you know, spoke at my high school um, at their uh, graduation ceremony. And I my speech was about, um, navigating uncertainty and change. And to write the speech, I actually um, uh, went to ChatGPT and I said to ChatGPT, <laughs> I look, by the way, great taste. Okay. The, I, I chose, <laughs> coconut's my favorite, but I chose. Yeah, it's my favorite as well. Right, the should, lemon's my least favorite. Really? I don't like the lemon one. Oh, well, yeah. lemon and coconut are my two favorite. Coconut's my go to, right? Coconut, hands down, early in the morning, late at night, coconut. The best. <laughs> by the way, this can be this. This has been sponsored by Lacroix, Coconut and Lemon. Even though Raul hates lemon. Okay, back to the back to the, back to the speech for a second. I actually used ChatGPT, and I said to these students, I said, you know, you think that this is such a unique moment in time, but I'll give you a totally different perspective. Between 1879 and 1903, right? Between 1879 and 1903, the telephone 
the light bulb, the automobile, and the airplane were all invented. Okay. So picture this. Wow. If you were born in 1904, you entered into a world that was completely different than if you died in 1878. Like if you died in 1878, you literally missed out on everything that was about to happen. And if you were born in 1904, you don't even know the worlds that preceded you. And so like we're in a moment that's very similar to that time frame, right? Where the world is changing drastically and people don't know how to make sense of it. And so people's minds go into two totally different areas. And, you know, like you have people make these comments that are so drastic about AI, right? Like Warren Buffett, someone who I have tremendous respect for, says like a few weeks ago, he said, uh, you know, AI is the equivalent of the atom bomb, right? Think about that for a second. AI is- I, the I, I think it's the same. I think it's the most powerful technology we've ever invented. Correct. However, let me ask you this question. When you say AI is the equivalent of the atom bomb, do you think- clean nuclear energy or do you think explosion i think clean nuclear energy okay do you see my point and and yes the reality is is that like and kevin kelly said this the best and and i'm really paraphrasing from from my speech but kevin kelly said this best is the future is defined by optimists right and so the people who see ai the way that you see it as you know clean nuclear energy that's how i see it um, recognize the opportunities it will present. The people who see it as an atomic bomb will never be able to see sort of the opportunities it will present, right? And so if the onus is on the optimists to be able to navigate us through this moment in time, um, but, you know, it's scary and it should not be sort of dismissed that there's no technology that can be invented for good that can also be used for bad. Yeah, I, it's exactly that. It's good and bad at the same time, as everything is. Yeah. All I know is, you know, my mental model for all of this, this, what I call the exponential age is there's nothing, there's not a damn thing you can do to stop it. It is going to happen. So you might as well either invest in it or go along for the ride. Cause if you're going to fight it, you're going to drive yourself mad. If you are going to fight it, you are just as ridiculous as the person in 1904 that said, you know what? I'm going to skip the automobile because I'm going to stay with my horse. Right. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> like it's true. I don't know what else to say. Part of my thesis of the exponential age, which plays into your broader ideas, is like there's a lot of these technologies all coming together, AI, robotics, Internet of Things, genetic sciences, and all of these things, EV, everything. But what's something that I've talked about for a while that I feel that you will get involved in at some point in this journey is Internet of Things. Machines are going to talk to machines, and they're going to have to pay machines. Uh -huh. So whether it's car streaming payments, that sort of thing. You're laughing because you're obviously thinking I, about this as well. I, I Listen, I've been thinking about this since my time at Wired and I left Wired in 2014. Like, I just, I think it's the most fascinating thing in the world. Machines paying machines. Think about that, what you said. It's, but continue your thought because I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, I just, look, at the simplest level, for people to understand, there's no reason cars don't stream payments for whatever it may be, right? So whether you're using localized um, information networks or you can re receive payments by giving map images or information to something, there's a payment system that can come from almost anything that can stream directly from the car without the need of a human. Let me ask you this question, right? Like, here's a really interesting thing. Why does Google care about autonomous vehicles? Like, have we even like, has anyone ever even like been like, okay, why does Google 
of all people care about autonomous vehicles. Maybe it's because if the person doesn't have to drive, it frees them up for more time where they're trapped in a vehicle that they could be served ads or information. <laughs> have you thought about that? Like, like I, I would love for Google to respond to that thought for a second of like, am I wrong? Nobody's ever said I'm wrong when I've said this publicly before. Well, look at every taxi, right? They've all, they serve you ads. They trap you in the taxi and then serve you ads. There's actually no better mechanism for ad delivery than figuring out how to automate automobiles because the person is legitimately trapped. And that's true, right? They cannot escape. And so it's like, guess what? We got you trapped. We're going to serve you some ads, right? And we're going to monetize the time. And like, I think that that's a really important reality of how to think about sort of the world that we're in, which is how do we squeeze more efficiency out of everything? And when I do think about Web3, Going back, you like how I could turn this full circle back to Web3 for a second, right? Um, and you think about how it's evolving. You know, I think that the blockchain portion of it is evolving both in a visible manner and in an invisible manner. In the visible manner, it's a lot about membership, super fandom, rewards, loyalty, uh, subscriptions. In the invisible manner, where it is the area that like will actually impact TradFi and, and all of those other areas, it's really just an exercise in efficiency. Right. And that's why it's going to win. Right. Because like ultimately it will enable companies to extract more margin out of everything because it will reduce all of the intermediaries. And so the only thing that's actually prohibiting its adoption today, in my opinion, is clear regulation policy and too much money vested interest, you know, standing in the way saying, whoa, I haven't figured out how to monetize this yet. I need to make sure that, uh, that I don't lose everything that I have in the way. Yeah, my, my thesis for a long time has been everything that, that gets digitized goes to zero in cost. Yeah. I mean, it's happened in everything, right? Even the media industry. I mean, it's just everything everywhere. So here's a question for you about media, because you'll be able to think oh, wait, wait, this. Can I throw that one, one thing further? So yeah. I would say anything, anything that can be digitized will, and to take it one step further, anything that is digitized that can be tokenized will. Well, is my argument on this. I think that it will Although go. Although blockchain itself solves digital scarcity, so some assets can retain value, right? Which is a really important concept that people haven't yet figured out. It's not just about monkey JPEGs. No. It's like in a digital world, in this digital future of the metaverse, you need some shit to hold its value because if not, nothing is worth anything. Yes. There's something eloquent about that statement. You need some shit to hold its value. I'm sorry. <laughs> So sorry, you were going to go on. You think that like, the question looking in six months outside? Of I time. know. Uh, we have to give we have to give the real vision fans like something to laugh about, right? <laughs> <laughs> Always. Now here's a question for you that I'm trying to think through, which is: What is the future of ads in an AI world? And is there solutions in what people like Brave Browser did, which is you know attention tokens? How are you thinking through that future of ads idea? So I haven't, I haven't thought about the future of ads a lot, to be honest, because um, it hasn't been in my mind the primary sort of um, uh, solve that I've been looking for. Um, what I will say, though, is 
Um, before you could get to what the future of ads are, you have to think about what's actually happening in the media ecosystem. And you have to realize like what I would say blockchain technology offers media um, providers as a solution. Um, one of the biggest issues that every media company and marketer is going to face over the next few years is going to be regulation and privacy, consumer privacy, right? And you see it with GDPR in Europe, CCPA in the States that's rising. You see Google has announced that they are going to be sunsetting third-party cookies. Like this is the basis on which the entire digital advertising ecosystem is sort of set. Um, what blockchain technology actually provides, this is what I saw with timepieces was the ability for privacy compliant engagement with the consumer, where the consumer can engage with your brand. You as a brand can still gain a lot of information about that consumer, but you don't know that consumer's first party identity outside of their wallet, unless you give them some sort of value exchange where they opt for it. And so right now, if you think about it, the entire web two ecosystem is an extractive ecosystem. We will give you your identity in return for your data. Everyone is so thrilled about threads coming out this week, right? I went on to threads on Thursday, right? Um, but like all of my identity is now, you know, more data in the Facebook database, right? And like people have to recognize like, look, like here's this brand and it has, you know, Facebook, it has WhatsApp, it has Instagram, and now it has threads. and I've never registered a Facebook account for myself personally, but I'm on WhatsApp, Instagram, and threads. doesn't make a difference that I don't have a Facebook account. They know everything about me, right? And so the Web3 promise is like, how can you escape that sort of extractive surveillance sort of monetization that you have um, for a world that is better from a consumer privacy aspect? The problem with consumer privacy, I apologize for the long-winded soliloquy, is people believe in it, but they're willing to sacrifice it if the trade-off is good enough, right? So like the theory and the reality don't align. And so the reason I think that this time is different is because regulators are saying, no, 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 we're going to actually enforce that like you have to respect these privacy rules with these GDPRs and CCPAs, you know, uh, legislations emerging. I also think that Maybe Mark Zuckerberg is not doing what everybody thinks and he's not really competing with Elon. What he's actually doing is training his own large language model because that's why Elon, I think, bought AI and bought Twitter was just to have the best training model. He's been closing down all the APIs so nobody can use it. So he's got the madness of humanity debating and discussing and talking about everything relevant on Earth as his database. So, so I think it's very hard to dismiss that as a reality or as a potential reality. I am, just so you know, I am the furthest thing from a conspiracy theorist. And the reason I am so far from a conspiracy theorist is um, I, like being that I've, I've been in news organizations almost my entire career, like I know that there are no journalists that sit in the back room and like, like debate on whether or not they're going to publish or not publish stories. Like they're going to go out and find great stories and they're going to tell the stories and they're going to do it independently. So I do not believe in conspiracies, right? I think that if, if something was happening, like a great journalist somewhere will find it, right? Like um, to that extent, I would be hard pressed to tell you that I have not thought the same thing, right? Like, I mean, 
you're looking at the world where AI is going to be the most dominant form of, um, of, of technological change that we'll probably experience. And Zuckerberg's sitting on some of the largest data sets on the planet. Um, Amazon's sitting on some of the largest data sets on the planet. Uh, Google's sitting on some of the largest data sets on the planet. Twitter's sitting on some of the largest data sets on the planet. And there's no way I could see a scenario where they let a newcomer startup displace them. No way. I just don't see it. It's terrifying, though, because we're giving so much power. You know, this fight, the Web3 fight that we're all having is to take some power away. And here they are in front of our eyes because they can outspend everybody and they have more eyeballs than everybody. And it's it's almost unstoppable unless open source does it. Right. Well, well, here's I mean, here's the way it's stoppable. But nobody wants to ever do it is if you look at the history of Facebook and uh, Google and, and, and all of these companies. All of which, by the way, I'm a fan of and I'm a critic of at the exact same time. So like I, I, don't, I, I don't fall on either end, right? I just am saying like from a pure observation, they have all violated the law consistently, okay? And then when they get hit with fines, what do they do? They pay the fines. And what are the fines? They're really just the costs of doing business. But when you're sitting on... $20 billion of cash and your fine is $50 million or $100 million, like who cares, to be honest, right? Like they're like, just pay the fine. If, if they really wanted to curb some of these actions, they should make the fines $20 billion, okay? Like literally make the fines almost the entire cash that they're sitting on. The only company that could afford to pay a $20 billion fine is Apple at this point, right? Like- so like I'm okay with it. like Apple has only done me good to be honest like like I'm okay with Apple totally <laughs> like they come out with great products it's beautiful like whatever but but kidding aside like it's really the only company that could afford right now with all the cash it's sitting on to be able to sustain multiple significant billion dollar fines but as you said the governments don't want to cook the golden goose either because. They like the fact, like the banks, they could just keep repeatedly finding them, fill up their own coffers, and everybody carries on, slap on the wrist. It kind of works for everybody, right? Yeah, it does. But I guess, like, the thing I would ask is, is what really is $50 million or $100 million to the U.S. government at the end of the day, right? Like, it's it's sort of like me getting $5, right? Um, like, like, the U.S. government getting $20 billion, though, that is, that's a great sort of uh, uh, a windfall. Right. Um, and, and I think honestly, like that would be my preferable way of, of, of moving forward and cleaning some of the stuff up is, you know, stop with the adjusted inflation adjusted fine base of like the 1920s, like literally like recognize like this has to be like billions of dollars of fines. People will wake up. So let's move back into the world of Web3 and the kind of NFT token space. What's what are you seeing that you're enjoying? Something that's making you look at? You know, there's a there's a shit show going on in NFTs as well with the blur in token incentives plus a general bear market. What's your kind of overall thesis? What are you looking at? What's interesting to you? Sure. So I I mean I have to say that like when when you say NFTs, right? Um, like when you look at the world that Blur plays in or OpenSea plays in or or others playing, like that's the collectibles and art market, right? 
Yeah. And I would say that like when you get into the art market, it's even differentiated, right? Because like the art market is its own little. It's really bifurcated. The high end market's gone like that. It, it's 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 its own little ecosystem. But so is collectibles, right? And so when you look at the world through the lens of the art market and collectibles, you get one sort of thesis on it. When you look at the world through the lens of, um, you know, uh, token to blockchain technology, you know, helping companies advance, um, you know, um, from an efficiency perspective or from what I talked about earlier, you know, memberships, subscriptions, loyalty and whatnot, you get a completely different perspective. In the latter perspective, the consumer more times than not has no clue that crypto is even involved, right? It's just, it literally is just a better experience. And it's the way I try to explain to people is, do you remember when your TV went from a regular television to an HDTV television? And like, you would all of a sudden be watching the Discovery Channel and you're like, I can't believe how beautiful nature can be on the TV, right? And you can't explain high definition, other than this one moment where you're like, this is a beautiful experience. I now have this in my home. Like that's what is beginning to happen with blockchain technology. And I think that what you're seeing is, is that's why it's really important that when you look behind you at the MFR that's on your wall right now, which I love, and we were talking about before, like, like the art that's on the MFR, the collectible art that's on the MFR is affixed to a token that in a lot of people's minds were one of the same thing, right? But the token and its interaction with the blockchain is completely different than the art itself. The art is just the aesthetic layer that interacts with the consumer. And I think when you remove that aesthetic layer and you look at what the technology can ultimately do from an efficiency play, um, it's, it's, it, it's an unbelievably exciting moment. And you know, you, you and I were talking before and you told me to shut up for a second about um you see how nice he is behind the scenes when he's not filming now i'm just joking i'm an evil ogre i'm an ogre he was he was so nice but like but but all kidding aside you know we were talking about is this the beginning of a new crypto bull run right and now i don't speculate on prices at all but like this is what i will say which i think is super important and if it's okay can i just read like so i've set out two tweets in a row for two weeks now of just positive developments within the crypto space. Okay. And I want to read them to you and, Please. and just think about this. And I'm going to read them to you backwards leading up to last week. Okay. In fact, you WhatsApped, you WhatsApp me this last, last weekend. I think it was, I'm like, think, yeah, this is dead right. Okay. So this is wild. If you look at all the positive developments that have occurred since the EU passed MICA, right? Their landmark regulation, right? On Thursday, June 1st, and I'm reading this now, so I apologize if anyone's watching video, my eye is going to move slightly over. Um, I cannot do this by memory. I could do a lot of it by memory, but not all. Okay. So on Thursday, June 1st, Hong Kong reinstated retail crypto trading through select exchanges. On Friday, June 2nd, the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee within the United States House of Representatives released a discussion draft on legislation providing a statutory framework for digital asset regulation intended to provide clarity, fill regulatory gaps, and foster innovation while providing consumer protections, and discussions are expected to commence in the U.S. House in July. On Sunday, June 11th, A16Z announced that they were expanding to London and hosting the next crypto startup school in 2024 there. In response, the U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak stated 
as we cement the UK's place as science and tech superpower, we must embrace innovations like Web3 powered by blockchain technology. And he goes on. On Wednesday, June 14th, it was disclosed in April that Hong Kong Monetary Authority sent a letter to HSBC, Standard Chartered, and Bank of China to take on crypto clients. On June 15th, BlackRock filed for a Bitcoin ETF. On June 16th, the Bank of England and the Bank of the International Settlements Innovation Hub of London Center published a report concluding that a well-designed digital currency could, quote-unquote, enable robust ecosystem to foster innovation and help meet future needs of more digitized society. Then, the following week, on Tuesday, the EDX exchange went live, and this is currently backed by Charles Schwab, Fidelity, and Citadel. On Tuesday of that week, Wisdom Tree and Invesco refiled for Bitcoin ETFs. On Tuesday, Deutsche Bank applied for a digital asset license. On Wednesday, U.S. Fed Chair Jerome Powell spoke on Capitol Hill and said cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin have staying power. On Wednesday, Valkyrie refiled for a Bitcoin ETF. On Thursday, the IMF released a report on crypto's usage across LATAM and Caribbean. Um, and they said, if well-designed CBDCs uh, can strengthen the usability, resilience, and efficiency of payment systems and increase financial inclusion in uh, Latin America and Caribbean, and while a few countries have completely banned crypto assets, given their risks, this approach may not be as effective in the long run. On Thursday of two weeks ago, MasterCard announced that it expanded its Engage program to help bring cryptocurrency card programs to market. On Friday, the, FTC, the SEC approved its first leveraged Bitcoin futures ETF, which will start trading on the 27th. Wait, wait, so this is wild for a second, okay? That was two weeks ago. Then you get back to last week. On Monday, HSBC announced it was offering Bitcoin and Ethereum ETFs to its customers, making it the first bank in Hong Kong to do so. Japan revised its corporate tax regulations, making it more attractive for prospects um, for crypto firms. On Tuesday, Fidelity filed for a Bitcoin ETF. On Wednesday, MasterCard, which continues to actually do incredible things in the payment space, announces the launch of a blockchain app store. Julius Baer on Wednesday announced that it was expanding to Dubai, where it will start to offer crypto services on Thursday. God, I'm fucking exhausted. Hold on a second. On Thursday, Financial Services and Markets Act of 2023, a reform bill in the UK was granted royal assent from King Charles. This law recognizes crypto as a trading as a regulated financial activity. Bank of America on Thursday released a report stating that tokenization is likely to transform infrastructure and financial markets over the next 15 years and may develop into a $15 trillion market. By the way, I'm fully biased. I was in that report. On, on Friday, Hong Kong announces that it, it established a task force to advance Web3 development. South Korea on Friday passes an inaugural standalone crypto bill titled the Virtual Asset User Protection and integrates 19 previously discussed crypto-related bills. And then on Friday, Eight issuers, including BlackRock, Fidelity, Wisdom Tree, Invesco, and ARK Invest, all refiled their submissions for Bitcoin ETFs to accommodate the requests from the SEC. And then on Saturday, when I thought that week was over, Matt Huang, the co-founder of Paradigm, the VC firm, tweets out, it was kind of ridiculous that we removed all mentions of crypto from our landing page. That was a mistake. We never left, but we're so back. Okay? If you tell me that something is not happening. I don't know what world you're living on. You are <laughs> entitled to your own opinions. You are not entitled to your own facts. What I just read, I put in the series of two tweets linked to, to every article that from Bloomberg and Coindesk and whatnot that shows that this is not linked to false news places. These are like legitimate sourced 
sort of uh, bits of information. The amount of momentum and change that's happening is unbelievable right now. And it's all taking place. And the thing that you have to take in, into consideration with Web3 is it's global and it will also be regulated locally, but it is global. And global is so big. Global is so big. Yeah, and my view has been if the US stumbles, the UK will take it. You know, the UK have done that very well in finance and it just moves around. It's like mercury, right? It's going to go wherever it gets treated well. So, yeah, I mean, that's a really powerful. You're a macro. You're trained in macro, right? Right. Like that's that's how you found your success in life, right? That's a pretty powerful macro summary I gave there, no? Yes. And if I've been using, and I talk about this a lot, that kind of mid-twit meme with the idiot on the left and the Jedi and then the person in the middle, right? What you're saying is basically both the left and the right tail. It's like, if you can't see something is happening, you are insane. You can argue with the finer prints, but it's all there in front of your eyes. And we've got the... so. This is all of the foundation. And then you've got the kindling of the ETF coming. And then you've got the end of the Fed cycle and, and a renewed business cycle. So you've got everything in place. And you had my other argument to add to that is prior to that, you threw $60 billion of VC capital into Web3. And everyone's like you, heads down, build it, right? That's exactly what you guys are doing. And so what the hell comes out the other side of this? I have no idea. but. It's going to be wild. It's going to be amazing. Okay. Like, I'll never forget this. My first issue of Wired is up there. Okay. Oh, yeah. So that was the first issue that my name was ever in. Okay. In the masthead. And I sent that issue to my grandfather. Okay. This issue was, I'm just looking for one second. September, September 2002, okay? So my grandfather was a real asshole, okay? And like, here's, here's like a side story for a second. People laugh when I say that. People will be like, how could you say that? My grandfather was kicked out of his hospice, okay? Like that, <laughs> like these are the nicest people on the planet and he was kicked out of hospice, okay? I love that I could go on record telling this joke, but it's a true story. Um, like that's how I wanted memory preserved. So, 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 um, <laughs> so I sent him that issue and I said, like, um, I'm like, I, I hope you're proud and you have to keep in mind September, 2002, right? So it's right on the heels of the dot com busts. And he writes back, he goes, um, you're so silly. You and your colleagues are so silly with this whole internet thing. Uh, you all thought that we were going to go order dog food online. That was his response to my first issue. This sits up there every day. It reminds me of this every day. It's, it's literally behind me. Every day I, I remember this story. He goes, you thought you, you guys would be buying dog food online. Well, I don't know. Like, uh, I bought dog food online last week from uh, the, the, the biggest company on the planet, Amazon.com, that in 2002 did not exist, right? Like, uh, as, as long as they, like, they thought it was going out of business, right, at that point. Uh, you know, um, uh, and I think that people just don't realize what happens during these build cycles, right? Like when you're in that Gartner hype cycle and you're in that trough of disillusionment and you have a 
small group of very principled, very focused, very optimistic people that are keeping their heads down. Like I would say, like, like I think people will be surprised. The other thing I will say is, you know, this space, the crypto space in particular, has introduced me to some of the smartest people I've ever worked with in my life. Uh, that's okay? incredible. And the energy. And, and it is, um, uh, and it's not to dismiss anyone else that I'd ever worked with, right? Like, but like this notion that the terminology used in the space does not pay the right, I would say, macro respect for the intelligence in the space. The term DGEN outside of the space seems so negative, but oh my God, if I met some DGENs that are just absolutely brilliant, right? And when I see the power that one mind, let alone multiple minds, can produce in this space very quickly, whether they, they went to college or they didn't go to college, it's absolutely one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, right? And, you know, there's been a lot of publicity about, you know, our acquisitions of, um, you know, Night Shift, which was very public and very large. But, you know, we've also quietly acquired over the past six months, you know, a slew of, of smaller companies, like two, three people, right, that are just you know, absolutely brilliant engineers and coders that are doing like one thing so specifically well and so powerfully well. And I think that that people should recognize that like regardless of what they feel is a bop popped bubble or a or a rebuilt bubble or whatnot, there's still a lot of brain power in this space. The incredible amount of brain power in this and space. I think it's cumulative. We go through these cycles. I've been in this space since 2012, 13. And every time we build more intellectual capital and more actual capital. And so each new bull market, you know, we had ICOs and that was a revolution of an idea. Just, you know, as usual in the speculative bubble, bubble gets misabused. But this time around was NFTs and DeFi. What is it going to be next time? I mean, you're already talking about, you know, maybe it's none of these consumer things. Maybe it's just the, the integration of the technology within the internet itself. Yeah, I, I think that's what it is, really. Like, it, you know, I, I think that, and I and I we talk about this quite a bit. Like, if we're really successful, like, we'll create an invisible company, right? Like that, and that's a really powerful statement, right? Like, to think about is, you know, Verizon is an invisible company. You don't think about Verizon from a consumer perspective on a daily basis. You think about it when you pay your bill, right? That's it, right? Or if a problem arises. Um, other than that, Verizon empowers everything. PayPal is kind of an invisible company, right? You don't think about PayPal every day except for like when something goes wrong or you need a positive, right? Like you make money off in it and you're pulling it. Like I think that the 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 biggest eye opener for me was where blockchain technology actually sat in this Web3 ecosystem. And, you know, I don't know what it is about me where I can I could literally turn anything into a hamburger analogy, but like I think of the blockchain technology as the bottom piece of the bun. AI is sort of the meat, right? Like it sits on both the top and the bottom and then the immersive is the top bun, right? You know, I'm really excited from where we're going to go. I think what a lot of what you're talking about and looking at has been fantastic. You were, don't forget, part of the previous revolution, which is the NFT space in its format of, okay, we can do something here with a smart contract. And yeah. now I can't imagine what you're cooking up and with what types of people. 
What is the most exciting outside of the identity layer? There's a final question for you. What is the most exciting infrastructure side that you're thinking this could be really killer? Okay, so that's unfair. And I'll tell you why. Uh, the identity layer is so utterly incredible that it's hard to say outside of the identity layer because authentication is everything, I guess. Yeah. So I would say this, the thing that gets me most excited outside of pure efficiencies, right? That, that could take place, which are boring excitements, but they're exciting, right? Like I'm a boring human being. Like I'm happy. With, I don't with, think so. Right? I am. You don't strike me as boring. All I do is drink lemon LaCroix or coconut LaCroix. And I chose wrong today. Okay. Apparently, like I was literally thinking about it before. And I'm like, I think oh. a lot less of you now. I'm sorry. I, I can't but help I, love, I think a lot more of you now because you're drinking <laughs> coconut, right? Here's, here's, here's what I would say is um, I think that there's going to be a um, revolution as it relates to um, like people's ability to monetize fandom, right? And memberships. And um, you see it today in social media where you can be sort of an individual and become a de facto brand and it works. But the thing that falls flat is you're still dependent on third-party monetization mechanisms, right? Like a sponsorship from this brand, you know, an endorsement over here. Um, it's very hard for people to make if you're like a, a really well-known branded individual, um, uh, you know, money off of super fandom, right? And I think super fandom is something that that fascinates me because almost everything else in a membership community you can do without Web3 technology. But when you constrain supply and demand, uh, when you constrain supply and you put it against a huge demand, like you all of a sudden can unlock something really special when it comes to membership access for some of these, you know, uh, personalities or celebs um, or talents, right? And so like if Taylor Swift, for instance, you know, had a membership that was open to everyone, but then ultimately was constrained to only 5,000 people. And she sold those for a thousand dollars, you know, a membership. I'm willing to bet that the tradeability and the FOMO aspect against what her larger community is to get access to whatever the value trade-off would be of the 1,000 pieces would far trump anything that any membership program can do. Right. And I think that Brands and individuals' ability to play with supply and demand versus market dynamics is going to be fascinating. So here's an idea I've been bleating all about to Tarek at Science Magic Studios, and you should think about it too. I've got a book in my bathroom, as we all do. And, I... and we're talking about your bathroom now? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, a, it's one of those big Tashin coffee table books. Yep. And it's album cover art. And I'm like... Well, these are just NFTs, but we've lost it in the Spotify world. And if you are Beyonce releasing a new album and you have authenticated NFTs for some of your albums that give rights, that's a massive change in, in the game because all the music, as you know, the music industry is a nightmare because of IP rights. Mm -hmm. But the album covers, 
it's kind of free of all that mess. Look, look, that was that was my like what you said was my thesis of time in the beginning, right? Like, what was time really? Time was really an analog meme, right? For a hundred years, yep. it was an analog meme, and like we could sell that analog meme and monetize that analog meme. I think that there's a there there. Now, I have a question for you: Who, in your opinion, not an infrastructure play, a brand play? What brand? And you can't say Nike, and you can't say Starbucks. Okay, what brand? is really doing interesting stuff in the Web3 space. And Web3 meaning immersive AI and blockchain. Um, I haven't seen a lot yet outside of some of the gaming stuff. I'm very interested in what everything LVMH is doing. Right, The French fashion houses understand. Ian Rogers put me onto this. Ian said to me, he went into, I think it was the head of Gucci, which is part of, um, caring. He's like, he went to explain NFTs. The guy stopped him off for like three seconds, goes, listen, Ian, we're in the business of selling scarcity. If you're telling me I can sell digital scarcity, I'll do it all day because I got a hundred percent margin, right? Straight up, got it. And I, I'm really interested to see, you know, you see the Arno kids are all Web3 people. Bernard Arno himself has a collection um, of NFTs and you're like, okay, that's they're really interesting. I've got my eye on them. So, so I I agree. I think that this evolution is ripe for fashion and luxury, like nothing else. Here's a here's an industry that fully missed the digital evolution, and now all of a sudden has a technology that can move community scarcity and monetization all at the same time. Are you kidding me? Like that and culture, it can I, move. All at the same time. I mean, that is unbelievable. And and what you just said a second ago is is actually where I think this takes place first. Is I think that this evolution is going to be a lot like this device, where you remember when the iPhone came out and every IT department was like, "You can't use that. It it doesn't have a keyboard, right? Like, or it's not secure." BlackBerry that had one server room in Canada was more secure apparently than the iPhone, right? That everything had to go through BlackBerry's server room, if you remember that. But but I jokingly say this is that it was consumer adoption that forced sort of companies to take on the technology. I think that it's going to be a cultural revolution that sweeps in first and then pulls this technology into sort of the consumer hands and then businesses will react accordingly to it. And and politicians and regulators will get more comfortable with it as they can start to play with it in more direct and meaningful ways and not in such sort of like, um, uh, like I, I would say, um, distant manners of like not being able to understand like an NFT or not being able to understand, um, you know, theory. You know, if I zoom out the big picture view, the macro view is when you look what's going on, there's Visa and MasterCard using it for payments rails. Every bank is building on it because they want the financial system to move to it. We've got the world's largest asset managers, people like Fidelity and BlackRock, a building product for it and offering it to clients. Then we've got the world's largest fashion consumer company building. Where's the career risk for anybody now? That's, that's There's a bit of regulatory uncertainty. There is zero career risk if literally the largest players in finance, in consumer goods, and in, and in consumer finance are all doing it. It's like, really? You, listen, you're 
that was like the Cliff Notes version of my 45 page, you know, two tweets, right? <laughs> that's, uh, but it's true. And that's, that's ultimately, there's this great quote by Daniel Patrick Moynihan that I say over and over and over again, you know, the former senator of New York. And he said, you are entitled to your own opinions, but you are not entitled to your own facts. And like no emotion, no emotion. The facts are showing one set of pictures that show a trend line that is going like this. And, you know, like valuations mean nothing at the grand scheme at a certain moment in time. They're over time that you have to think about it. Right. And like, like who cares what the market values this at today? When you could see everything that it's going towards, that's why like my mind is like, okay, like I'll just focus on making sure I'm going to where the puck is going to. And I will, you know, build towards that future because I see that it's taking place. And, you know, not only is it MasterCard and Visa doing it, but think about it this way. There was a point that American Express said, I do not want to be in this business. And American Express is now in this business. There was a point where BlackRock said, I do not want to be in this business. And BlackRock is now in this business, right? Like there was a point where I can go through every industry, right? And then somebody could throw it back to me and say, well, there are just so many bad actors in crypto. And I could say to them, but there's so many bad actors in every industry that money can be made, right? If you go to health, there's Theranos. If you go to energy, there's Enron. If you go to finance, boy, I could name like a billion you know, uh, it's like, I, we don't have another two hours, right? If you go to telco, there's MCI, right? Like there, there's always going to be bad actors everywhere, but there's also going to be a lot of good actors, right? And so like, as we start to think through this, like, I do think that it's really important that regulation is, is done correctly and responsibly. I do think that we'll probably see a little overcorrection of regulation. I mean, we're seeing a lot of sort of, um, uh, situations taking place now with lack of regulation. I think that a good solid regulation regulatory framework is healthy for us to be able to innovate. Yeah, I think so. And I think the UK is actually showing the way they've done pretty good. Even the EU's done a pretty good job. Singapore, they've all done it. And even the UAE, which like should not be shied upon, right? Like, and you know, I've said this to you, I've been over there four times in the six months that I've been here. Like, it's amazing to see, you know, how um, open, you know, they are to sort of innovation. Yeah. Keith, fantastic, optimistic, and wonderful and fun conversation oh, as ever. Please, a pleasure, my friend. Thank you for having me. And um, we'll have to get together in person at some point again soon. I haven't seen you in a while. I know. Please, please, please let me know. And just so everybody knows, Roel's about like four feet taller than me in person, right? So I like this, this moment where we're sitting down and we look like we're about the same size. So <laughs> have a great one. <laughs> fantastic, my friend. Good to see you. Likewise. So I think you can tell Keith, like myself, is a huge optimist. He's using the macro view of to step back, filter out the noise and see what is going on here. And he's talking about a more profound shift than the last phase of crypto, which was more kind of upfront. It's, it was DeFi, it was NFTs, it was the tokens themselves. He's like, and I've been talking about this for a while, the abstraction away of all of it into the efficient infrastructure layer of the internet itself. Now, it's in good hands with Keith and many others who are building the same vision. But if he's right, it's going to enable everything. So I think we can all be optimistic that even if it's not game on right now, it is definitely game on, at least for the next five or 10 years.
So strap in and take the, or buy the ticket, take the ride, as I like to say. This episode of Raul's Adventures in Crypto was sponsored by Token 2049 Singapore. Get 65% off regular ticket prices with the code REALVISION at t2049.co slash realvision.